Will you turn with me now in the Word of God to <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 1 as we continue our series in Paul's prayers or praying with Paul. Our text this morning will be Ephesians 1, 15 through 19. Ephesians 1, 15 through 19. I'm going to ask you here and wherever you are tuning in with us to go ahead and stand up now out of respect for the reading of the Holy infallible, inspired, and inerrant word of the living God. Ephesians 1, beginning at verse 15. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing Greatness of his power towards us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. May God add his rich blessing to the reading of his word. I'm going to begin this morning with a simple and straightforward question that you're just going to have to answer on your own heart and in your own mind this morning. But one that you should answer, though. And it's uh, a very basic question, and it's this. What would cause you, what would cause you to drop down on your knees and pray fervently? Now, some would say this morning, what's the point of that? Doesn't God hear every prayer anyway? And I would say, of course, he hears every prayer. But if you've never come to the point in your life where you've had to drop down in your knees and pray fervently, it's quite likely you haven't been taking things very seriously in your life. Because it will happen because of God's unfolding of providence in life. You will be met with situations that you are no match for. And the way you handle such situations is with prayer. And I mean fervent crying out to the Lord with all of your heart prayer. So I've asked the question, let's come back to it again, what would cause you to drop to your knees and pray? If I was just to pause here this morning and do something I would never do, which is take out a piece of paper and have each of you tear off a piece and with a pen write down that and then pass it up to me, if I read them off, I'll bet you I will come across something like this. Uh, the kind of thing that I would drop to my knees and pray for is financial distress. The kind of thing I would drop to my knees to and pray for fervently is a serious medical condition. The kind of thing that I would pour out my heart before the Lord for is a badly broken relationship. The kind of thing which would cause me to bow my knee before Christ is to earnestly seek the knowledge of God's will for my life in the midst of a time of a lack of awareness about what God wants me to do. And believe me, every single one of those would be a great thing to say, this is the time, this is the reason, this ought to compel me to pray in that way. But I wonder if we had these imaginary prayer slips that I received and I read through them, I wonder if on any of them I would find this, the knowledge of God. The knowledge of God. And that is precisely what the Apostle Paul dropped to his knees to pray for. I know it doesn't say that here, but when he continues his prayer in Ephesians 3, he says, for this reason I'm bowing my knees in prayer, and structurally it is simply the continuation of the prayer report here, and the prayer here. So it's evident here from our text that the Apostle Paul has dropped to his knees, and this is what he seeks. The knowledge of God. And obviously when he's saying that, he's speaking of the knowledge of God the Father, because as you look at verse 17, what surrounds the prayer request may 
he give you is a reference to the God of the Lord Jesus Christ, and secondly, the Father of glory. So the knowledge of him here is very evidently the knowledge of God the Father. So what causes the apostle to drop down to his knee and pray unto the Lord for fervently is that he and the church with him would grow in the knowledge of God. Mark it, I didn't say knowledge about God, knowledge of God. And that request is amplified, qualified, and explained even more in verse 18 when he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. We have a qualification now. The apostle is explaining what he means by this request that the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him would be given. Basically, you could say that is, or what I mean is, or to make it more clear is, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. So this knowledge of God that the apostle is speaking of is a knowledge that flows from and through the illumination of the Holy Spirit in the depths of the heart. We can get even more granular and specific as we move on now to the rest of that clause in verse 18, where he says three things about this enlightenment. And it all begins with the signaling of purpose, so that you will know. Y'all see that? That tells you exactly what the illumination is for. So that you will know. What is it that you're to know? It's very clear here, three things. The riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, the hope of his calling, and the surpassing greatness of God's power to us who believe. By the very structure and arrangement of the thought here, the apostle is saying this. The knowledge of God comes through being uh, illuminated in the knowledge of his works of grace. The apostle is saying, the more we know God through his works of grace, we know God. And that, the apostle says, is something that is worth your time dropping to your knees to pray about. Prayer is the means by which we receive Holy Spirit illumination of the divine works of grace so that we grow in the knowledge of God. That's the main point here in our text. It has three parts. The reason for prayer, the object of prayer, the content of prayer. And believe me when I say this, I have been battling in my mind for at least a few days to say, let me just leapfrog over all that and come to verse 19. Because I really want us to settle down and plant our anchor firmly in verse 19 and cause us to really dig in and burrow our way into the thought of verse 19. Because it's right here, I think particularly, where we have this rich vein of thought opened up about this knowledge of God's works in grace, that if we come to know through spiritual illumination, will really open us up to this knowledge of God which the apostle prays for. So keep that tucked away in your thinking. We'll get there as fast as we can. But we need to see a few things first because they prepare us for really laying hold of that great panoramic point of verse 19. And the first thing uh, that I want us to think about here, quickly at least, is the reason for the prayer. The reason for the prayer. And basically, the first thing we'll say is that Paul is praying That should be evident to us as we see the language of verse 16. For instance, he says, I do not cease giving thanks for you. The language should remind us of what we saw last week as we began our series on praying with Paul in Colossians 1.9, where he said there that we have not ceased to pray for you. Well, it's the same language, basically, Uh, a small alteration in the language of swapping out prayer for thanksgiving. But uh, I think it's fairly parallel, at least, 
we can say here that when the apostle says he ceases not to give thanks for them, he's doing that in the midst of his prayers. So prayer is that means by which he brings thanks uh, to God for the saints there. You can see the rest of the idea of praying in verse 16 as we read here that uh, he says he's making mention of them in his prayers. The term for prayer there is general. It's evident that he's speaking of them. The word mention is to talk about something after you remember it. To talk about something after you remember it. So this has the idea of in the midst of his prayer, recalling the Ephesians and then praying for them. But what causes all of this, it seems to me, to to lift off and begin to soar is the note of thanksgiving, which is really the grounds of this whole prayer. And, and you can see for yourself that the way Paul begins verse 15 indicates to us that thanksgiving to God is on his mind because he begins this new section with for this reason, for this reason. Well, what is he thinking of there? What is he looking back to? Well, it's uh, fairly evident that what he's looking back to is this extended um, eulogy or giving thanks in verses 3 through 14. And, and by the way, this is one of the most stunning Thanksgiving sections in all of Scripture. Everybody agrees to that. It's as if grace cascades from a deep pool or fountain of grace in heaven above and just unfolds one fountain after another. As you look at verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every single spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. That is the contemplation of the deepest possible resource of grace for us. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And from there, it moves from election in Christ before the foundation of the world to predestination in love unto adoption of sons. From there to the redemption of sins through his blood, which is the forgiveness of sins. We move from there to the knowledge of the mystery of his will. And finally, with the spirit sealing and the idea of partaking in the inheritance of heavenly grace in the future. So we have a whole series of things here. Grace upon grace upon grace. And the Apostle Paul, as he pivots from giving thanks to God to prayer for the church, he begins with this little connection. And it tells us that his heart is moved and being prepared for praying for the church as he thinks about the grace of God. The sovereignty of the God and his grace. Because, look at it like this. What would move you to prayer more than to know that God is sovereign? And whatever need you have, he is capable of supplying. It would rather seem to me a fool's errand to pray for something if I didn't believe God was sovereign. You see, I have no confidence in praying to a non-sovereign God. And what's more is a God who is sovereign in his grace, not just that he has the brute force or the raw power to bring about what I've asked, but but he's also known to us as a God of grace who gives sovereignly and freely to his people. That's the ground. And so he prays this way for this reason. But the other thing that stands out and feels electric to me in verse 15 is the report of them. See, he's grateful for them, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you, and your love for all of the saints. So he's got thanksgiving on two horizons or in two poles on his mind. Thanksgiving to the sovereign heavenly Father, who is this vast reservoir of grace, which he causes sovereignly to overflow to his church and to his people. And then he thinks about those who are the unworthy receivers of it. You. You Ephesians. You former worshipers of the false goddess Diana. And what he says about them is remarkable. They are known for the twin graces of faith and love. 
One of the things that really stands out about when you think about these early congregations is what they separated from was a life steeped in the most gross, carnal, dark, corrupt idolatry. It's really shocking to think about the gross corruption of the idolatry of antiquity. And when he addresses the church here, he, he overflows with thanks because Christ's sovereign grace has won. It, it has separated them. It has made a clean and sharp break from what's false. And so, so what he gives thanks for is they not only turned unto Christ, but they continue in their faith in the Lord Jesus. They have broken with false religion. And they make a bold, public, open stand for Christ. And by the way, Ephesus was no easy place to do that if you just think back to Acts 19 and how the Apostle Paul was dragged before the magistrate in the midst of the public uproar and fury of the citizens of the city who'd lost their financial and economic security because the idolatry business dried up through the preaching of the Apostle Paul. They hated Christ and Christianity. And yet they wore their faith on their sleeve here. The other thing you see here is love that characterized them. These are a people who didn't just have a sort of orthodox faith. Ask me the question, I got the answer kind of Christianity. You want to know where the I is dotted or the T is crossed? I can help you with that. Now these are a people who are robust in faith, who have a, a soundness to their faith. But what's even uh, just as remarkable as that, I don't want to say it's more remarkable than the faith, but what is remarkable right alongside that is they have soundness of life. They love each other. These are very difficult to hold together sometimes. Soundness in faith and soundness in love. You've often heard of the congregation that says, well, we're not very big on doctrine, but we are big on love. And then the other, the church feels like a lecture hall and people can't even relate to each other normally. That happens too. The apostle says there's no false dichotomies. There's no false choices being made here. We have a robust, rich, living, active, strong, sound faith. And we have the deepest of love and compassion for one another. This is a congregation that's had a genuine experience of grace. There has been real transformation in their life through the sovereignty of God's grace. And yet, it's for this congregation that Paul prays, I want you to know God. These aren't the, these aren't the Corinthians. These are a congregation that is probably one of the most stable, sound, doctrinally mature congregations in the New Testament era. It's that congregation. He says, I want you to grow in the knowledge of God. So I think about this prayer. As Paul moves from past to present, it grips me with the reminder of what we ought to be giving thanks for. It grips me with the reminder of what we ought to be giving thanks for more often probably than we do, which is that God in his grace showers that upon sinners, people who are completely unworthy and undeserving, and he just opens up his hand and he raises them up. I think over the years of how many people have been raised up from our midst and touched with the power of grace, and that's not something that just happened in the past. It continues in the present as I've watched so many of you grow from the time of just learning about the Reformed faith into all of these years of seeking maturity in Christ, that is God's grace. It's nothing about us. It's about God showing mercy to this congregation. We give thanks for it. None of us are a finished project yet. Anybody who's grown older in the faith realizes they still have a mountain of sins to hack away at. <laughs> they got a lot of maturity to find yet. They got a lot of wisdom to be acquired. There's a lot more room for growth and sanctification. You see, Paul gives us his testimony here that when God begins the work of grace, he continues it. We've moved from past to present, and God is just continuing to provide. And so we're grateful for this testimony. I also want you to just look with me quickly at the object of prayer. And I think it's it's really important for us to see how Paul moves from uh, the Ephesians 
to turn the spotlight now upon God, to whom he prays. Verse 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. You know, there's two phrases here that might feel a little clumsy to us when we hear them, but they're really full of theological riches and depth. And the first one is the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. The God of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, what Paul is saying is that the God of Jesus Christ is the Father. And that's where you say, huh? I, I thought Jesus is the Son of God, equal in power and glory and might with the Father and the Spirit. But um, as you think about that, you begin to understand what his point was. He's referring to the incarnate Jesus Christ. He is referring to Christ in his humanity, in his capacity as our mediator. And uh, Jesus himself uses language just like this. John 20, 17. I ascend to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. See that? My God and your God. What does that language tell you this morning? It tells you of what is necessary for you to be saved, which is the mediation of Jesus Christ, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the humanity of Christ. I, I absolutely love that statement in uh, Hebrews 2, I, I'm confident it's 2.12, where it says, in bringing many sons to glory, he became partaker of our flesh and blood. That's exactly the sense of what the apostle is saying here in a different way. He's accenting something which is critical for the access of this grace is that Jesus Christ is our mediator. Jesus Christ is the one who reconciles us to God. It's through Jesus Christ that we know God. It's through Jesus Christ we receive the grace of God. It's through Jesus Christ we become sons of God. And it's precisely because the Father is the God of Jesus that he is our God. There's no other way without it. Because there would be no way to be reconciled to him. So we, at what at first feels kind of a little awkward in the language here, as you begin to, to pull it apart and think it through with the scriptures, it reminds you as you're thinking about the object of prayer, that God is ready to hear our prayer because of Jesus Christ. And so we can pray for the most stupendous things, if you think about it, because our prayers are through Christ. The other thing here that's important about the way he describes uh, the Father here is he describes him as the Father of glory. The Father of glory. And at first glance you might say, well, that's just kind of heaping up some terms for pious sounding talk. But then you go thinking about, you say, well, how is glory used in reference to God? And one of the rich veins of thought that opens up is you start... Uh, Tracing that out as you begin to realize that uh, when we speak of glory in relationship to God, it's a, it's a way of God unveiling himself to us or disclosing himself. Maybe one of the most, um, uh, one of the most iconic examples of this is Exodus 33, where, um, where Moses, in a moment of frustration, or with the people of God in the wilderness, cried out to the Lord and he said, I'm not going to go a step further in these sandals, cross this sand, unless you show me your glory. And God said, Moses, if I showed you my glory, I'd vaporize you. But here's what I'll do. I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and I'll put my hand over it and my backside will pass by, as it were. And that is in Exodus 34, where you get this great disclosure of the majesty of God. What I'm trying to put in our thinking here is that when glory is associated with God, very often in Scripture, it has to do with God revealing and disclosing himself. 
Now, look to your near text here in Ephesians 1, and you see something here about glory. Two different texts here in the verses prior, glory is used, at least two of them. And the thing that is disclosed about God the Father in both of them is that he discloses and unfolds his grace. Look at verse 6, for example. Paul speaks of God's kind intention of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace. In verse 13, you see uh, that those who have hoped in Christ have done so to the praise of his glory. So here we can see not just uh, God being uh, unveiled or disclosing himself, but disclosing in a particular way as a God of grace. In other words, God's glory shines, if you will, in grace. And we, we saw a whole series of grace. We just went through them. Election and foundation and redemption and, and all of that. This is the glory of God shining forth and being revealed. And so the Apostle Paul, before he moves into what seems to be the main point of our text, sets before us this picture of God to incite us to pray. If you struggle in your prayer life, people of God, think about this. Who are you praying to? How do you get there before the throne of grace? It is really hard, as I think about it, to just talk about prayer in the abstract. I, I can't be moved very easily to pray if I'm just hearing generalities, pray in God. But what makes me feel and sense uh, the urgency of the call to prayer is the fact that our sights are fixated upon the mediator, Jesus Christ. We hear about this uh, majestic throne of grace, but the preacher doesn't speak of that majestic throne of grace apart from whom? Christ. If you're struggling in your prayers, you need to think upon Christ. He is the image of the invisible God. We will get lost in thinking and even distracted if we think in the abstract. But when we focus our thoughts here, as the apostle has led us to, about a God of grace in the Lord Jesus Christ, we're ready. And so we're ready now to move into what I've told you I feel is the heart of this message and something I really want us to sink into here for a moment and think about as we learn to pray with Paul we move to the content of prayer. We pick up in verse 17 where we already have been in our introduction to that key phrase where the Apostle Paul prays, May he give to you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. And obviously you can see prayer request type language or prayer language there in may give you. So let's start pulling this apart now. We have this reference to wisdom and revelation and i don't think those are the high points just yet I, I i think that they're ways to describe what the spirit gives okay so what is wisdom but the application of god's word and god's law to life the ability to discern the right application of the word of god to particular situations that's wisdom not the wisdom of the book of proverbs we're not speaking of inspired revelation here we're speaking about what the Spirit gives as we think upon the Word. That capacity to discern and to distinguish and to apply. And then we have the next term here, revelation. And this isn't about receiving direct new revelation from God that's some sort of secret disclosure of God's will to me in my own privacy and secrecy, in my own station in life, apart from the Word. This revelation is another word or a synonym for illumination. Insight given by the Spirit as we pray and dwell upon the Word of God. But what really seems to be the focus here is the Spirit. May He give you the Spirit. And this is an impersonal language. This is a reference to the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And what He prays for, for those who already have Him, is more. An increasing, an abounding uh, um, a heaping portion more of the Spirit. But I want to focus in here on this word knowledge because I think it's key for 
unlocking and unraveling the sense of this prayer request. Knowledge. What does he mean when he speaks of the knowledge of God? I've already tipped my hand here. I've warned us to not think about the accumulation of more facts and data. Paul's not saying, well, I wish you had a a version of Burkhoff's Systematic Theology or Charles Hodge uh, Monumental three-volume uh, Systematic Theology, but since you don't have that, prayer will do. No, he's thinking of an experiential knowledge of God. One of the best ways I can draw out that sense of the word knowledge here is to bring up an ugly truth. Paul uses this word in Romans 3.20. He says, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now it seems to me fairly self-evident when you hear that knowledge there, he's not speaking of cracking open a textbook or listening to a lecture. That's how I understand sin. No, what he's saying here is that when the law has done its work upon the conscience through the power of the Holy Spirit, I come to know something in a way I could never know it by listening to a series of lectures upon sin. Or reading a stack of books about it. There's something about that personal awareness and conviction of sin. When your sin is pressed upon your mind and soul and conscience and you feel squirmy. That's knowledge of sin. Experiential. You know it. It's truth pressed upon the soul. This is exactly what he's speaking about here when he speaks about this knowledge of sin. Or rather of God. It is a knowledge of God that is pressed upon the soul and leads into the deepest levels of conviction about God. And it it leads to uh, a deepening of a relationship with God. Again, this is not about knowing more about God. It's knowing God. Maybe another way I can just draw this out is, you know, you can read all you want about God, but until you've learned... To trust the Lord in the midst of difficult circumstances, as just an example, you don't really know God yet. You know Him some way. But when you go through those times in life when, when you have to hang upon prayer for your just basic sense of survival, you can't come outside, you can't come through that trial without knowing God in a more deep and profound way because you lived in Him through prayer as you went through what felt like the valley of the shadow of death. There was a kind of learning that you can't just describe in textbook sort of ways. That's what's going on here. And that is reinforced now as you come into verse 18. I pray the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. And I've already told you before that you could really translate verse 18 as what I mean is this. Or what I'm trying to say is this. We, we can tell from the structure of the language here. Paul is amplifying and explaining further what was meant here in this prayer. May he give to you a spirit of wisdom and revelation the knowledge of him. What I mean is the eyes of your heart be enlightened. In the inward depths of the soul, the seat of who I am as a person, where the intellect, will, and emotions come together. He prays that we would be illuminated. And what are the eyes? The eyes are the capacity to know. They're that aspect or organ that takes in the information. So it's metaphorical. But this is speaking of the tool that... Uh, enables us to apprehend. And he says, the Spirit, He will enlighten us. And all of it, we see, then comes to the purpose statement. So that you will know. Again, the knowledge here is going to parallel that knowledge above. 
And one way we know that is because the apostles already taught them this. The apostles already taught them about effectual calling. The apostle has already taught them about the glory of their inheritance. He's already referenced it in verse 14 as something they knew about. Certainly they know that their salvation was the work of a sovereign divine power in them. Remember, he, he taught the Ephesians for three years in the school of Toronto. When he prays that they would know, he's not saying People of God, I want you to learn something that you never picked up in catechism yet. Saying, I want you to be gripped in the depths of your being with the knowledge of these divine works of grace. Because when you are, you will come to know in a greater depth the knowledge of God. So we worked through three specifics. I told you I already wanted to just really zero in on the last because it seems to me that's the one with the greatest depth to it in a sense. But we, we just take quickly what is uh, the hope of the calling here. This is very definitely a reference to the general or the effectual call, not the general call. This is the gospel call being taken effectually to my heart for conversion. The Westminster Shorter Catechism speaks of it in a very simple way, but perhaps most profoundly. You can get your hands around what effectual calling means with this quick summary. It says it's a work of the Spirit of God whereby He convinces us of our sin, enlightens our minds in the knowledge of Christ, renews our will, and persuades and enables us to embrace Christ in the gospel. That's the effectual call. Convincing of our sin, enlightening of our mind, renewing our will, and persuading and enabling us to lay hold of Jesus Christ as he's freely offered. And what's the apostle saying here is there is a hope that is built into that call. And the hope that's built into that call is just as Jesus has called you to himself, so you will be conformed to him. Something that's going to happen. We will be like he is. That's the promise of adoption. We have the riches of his inheritance among the, uh, the, the saints here. And this is simply a reference to verse 14. And beyond that, the idea that each and every believer has a, has a good slice or chunk of real estate set apart for them in heaven. Everyone does. Our place, our standing is secured by Jesus Christ. And it's something all the saints together will share in. They'll have their portion. And the thing that Paul accents about it is it's, it's rich. Paul says another place that I has not seen nor ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man. But God is prepared for you want to think about riches, that's it. But can we settle on verse 19 now? Because, you know, this is um, one of the most encouraging verses in the New Testament. Because here he says, he wants us to know what is the surpassing greatness of his power to us who believe these are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. This is term after term piled up. But what's the topic? The topic obviously here is the power of God. This is what is put under the spotlight here in your text. The power of God to us. And the interesting thing here about this word power, dunameos, is that it tends to be associated in the New Testament with guess what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it is here, as you read on into verse 20, you can see that Paul compares the power that's to us as the very same power that quickened the dead body of Jesus Christ. So when you think of this dunamis, this, this massive, extraordinary power, the Apostle Paul plucks at a term that speaks of omnipotence, limitless power. So that's his beginning point. And then uh, he amplifies that by uh, two words here, as he says, surpassing greatness. 
The first one, surpassing, is a word that speaks of um, going beyond the limit. You know, it's like when you're a kid and you're down by the lake and you cannot resist this. I don't care, boy or girl, you cannot resist down by the lake picking up a rock and throwing it in the water. Has anybody ever resisted that impulse? I mean, I can remember the first time I went to a body of water as a little kid and seeing rocks. You can't help but picking up that rock and throwing it as far as you can in the lake. But this word surpassing has the sense of, think of as far as you can throw that rock and then some more. Surpassing. And the next word here is greatness. And it comes from a word that sounds like a skateboarder might use it. Megathos. Megathos. It's something that's of um, unusual proportion or dimension. It speaks of magnitude and size and depth and greatness. It, it's, it's an enormous word. And both of those words are used to describe this word power. It's as if the Apostle Paul is saying, I, I'm really laboring to exercise your brain cells so that you think as expansively as you can, as intensely as you can about power. That's what it is. But he doesn't seem satisfied with that. So he says, I'm going to give you a, a, a measuring stick. Look at the rest of verse 19. He talks about the surpassing greatness of his power, and then it says, these are in accordance with the working of his might. In other words, it says, these are according to. It's as if it's a, a measuring stick. He says, I really want you to get your hands around this concept. Three distinct words. Working, strength, and might. Working, that's power in action. Strength, that's supremacy, total control. Might, that's inherent strength. So three more terms flesh out this measuring stick device so that you can say, wow, that's serious power. We've got four terms for power, two terms to qualify it or describe it. Now, what's the point of all of this? Paul is not lecturing on power per se or divine power in the abstract. The thing that really grips you in this verse is what he says about that power. It's to us. It's to us who believe. Obviously, when you think about this power towards us who believe, it's got to be a reference to the past and to our regeneration and conversion. It has to be. One of the things that he's describing here is how it could come to pass that I can come from spiritual death into eternal life. How can that be? That we who were walking in the trespasses of our sins, so the Apostle Paul describes you being dead in Ephesians 2.1 to being seated in the heavenly places in Christ. How could that possibly happen? Well, nothing less than the unleashing of power, God's power, divine power, gracious power upon us so that we would believe and be saved. But we can't deny it's present because it says to those who are believing, meaning present tense. If you're believing right now, the Apostle Paul says there's something to you. And this is what he's praying for that you would know. Because after this, by the way, people of God, the prayer trails off. I don't know if you know this or not, but if you put your finger at the end of verse 19, you will not see the Apostle Paul restart his prayer until... Ephesians 3.14, for this reason I bow my knees to the Father. So he stops his prayers right there. This is the end of his thought where he leaves the church hanging for a while. And he leaves them there contemplating this expansive idea that to you who believe there's this staggering, mind-boggling, hope-filling idea. God's power is to you. Every time I, I sit and think about this, I, I don't know if I have words to express how invigorating this feels. To know that in all of my frailty and weakness and sinfulness, that God has done something that 
is beyond my conception in a sense, but it's really not because he says it's there. And maybe that's why we're being led to pray for it so that we'll grow in the knowledge of it because it does, in a sense, it just feels like, how could this be true? But one of the things the apostle is trying to say for our encouragement this morning is that God's indescribable and unspeakable and omnipotent power is right there dwelling in you now. And what that means for you this morning is that you don't fight your sins alone. You don't conquer your fears by yourself. You don't even pray in your own strength. You don't exercise your own endurance and resolve to live the Christian life. Everything that you do, you do with the power of God's hand at your back, pulling, drawing, holding you. I couldn't uh, help but remember if you spend uh, much time at a rescue mission before, you probably heard this, the old song sung, There's Power in the Blood. It's favorite, the rescue missions. Power in the Blood. Power in the Blood. And, and the point of that song is to say, you can bring your whole ruined life to Jesus Christ. There's enough strength in that blood to heal you. There's enough in Jesus Christ to raise you up out of the ruin you've made for yourself. God will be merciful, but he also will be strong enough to help you. Obviously, it means something about forgiveness of sins. I'll, I'll grant that. But there's something more to the idea of power in the blood than that we are forgiven of our sins when we speak of the power of the blood to heal people who are in their sins. We don't necessarily mean to say, it's just blood. <laughs> what we mean to say is that blood purchases something for me. And that's what Paul describes right here. The surpassing greatness of his power, which is in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. Jesus Christ on his cross purchased for every believer the sovereign administration of God's power to not just save, but to sanctify them. And so this text this morning is good news for Christians who are sinners. It's good news for people who need help. It's good news for people who are struggling with fighting their way out of the grips and the chains and the enslavement of their own appetites and desires and sins. Do you have any sin in your life this morning that you hate? Be honest with yourself. Do you have any sin in your life that you hate, that you come back to? Now, this is where we bring the gospel down to practicality. This is where the gospel has begun to be spoken into the ears of the believer for their consolation, for their encouragement, for their help. Because of our depravity and our weakness and the ongoing battle with our own sinful nature, we have these sins. We hate them. And those chains and that grip feel powerful. Paul lays this before the Ephesians because he knew what they were battling with, even though they had this great testimony of enduring in faith. Oh, how easy it would have been for them to go back to their old ways. How tempting it must have been to relieve the pressure of the strain of Christ. You see, what we need in order that we may be equipped and armed to fight off this sin and to move forward in the Christian life and to endure and to run this race is this power of God. And the way we tap into that power, the apostle says, is prayer. May God give you the spirit of wisdom 
and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your heart be enlightened so that you will know the surpassing greatness of his power to you who believe. The way to fight that sin, people of God, is the knowledge of God. And that knowledge of God isn't some mystical or experiential or esoteric, personal, my own private knowledge of God that I somehow gained through a prayer retreat. The knowledge of God that you need to wage that battle is a knowledge of God and His grace. A knowledge of God in the work of His grace. And the way we obtain that is prayer. The illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. Think about your life this morning. Think about what your needs are. And then remember that God's strength and grace is adequate for you. And the way you come to be assured of that so that you exercise this power and so that you come to lay hold of it and experience it in your life is by knowing God. And the way you come to know God is by going to Him in prayer and bowing your knees before Him and pleading with Him that He may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge and so that your eyes will be enlightened so that you will be able to see and then seize upon the help of God's grace and of his power. And as you do that, the apostle says, you will know God. And that strength then will be put into action in order that you may lead a life that is pleasing to him. I hope this morning, people of God, you've been encouraged to think about how to pray from the apostle. Because his prayers were practical and designed to teach believers how they can learn to live for his glory. As they make use of this really humble and simple means that God calls prayer. Father, we thank you for the testimony this morning of the apostle of old about great grace which is in you father we pray that as we continue to learn with the apostle and pray with the apostle that our prayer lives would be changed as we are instructed by preach uh, by the scriptures to pray as we ought to pray may we all know the hope and the encouragement of um, the Spirit's illumination who teaches us to know the things that we already know, but we haven't thought about adequately enough and don't have the strength in ourselves to grasp. Put those within the reach of our hands this morning as we humble ourselves before you and pray. And know that as we pray that the Father of glory will not deny what we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.